0: Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia.
1: Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has vowed to improve ties with Japan's neighbours and further promote a mutually beneficial relationship to build a stable friendship with China and South Korea. (laughs) demonstrators were protesting outside the Japanese embassy in Beijing. In Hong Kong, they were burning an old Japanese flag outside the consulate.
0: Japan and South Korea reaching a deal aimed at addressing the demands of so-called comfort women forced into sexual slavery by the Japanese military during World War II. Many survivors say the deal falls far short.
1: Could Japan's new military aggression be the biggest
0: threat to China? And to the feelings of the Chinese people? Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialists at the University of Melbourne. On Ear to Asia, we talk with Asia experts to unravel the issues behind the news headlines in a region that is rapidly changing the world. In this episode, we look at the optics of Japan's relations with its neighbours. How do Korea and China see Japan right now? And is Japan succeeding and moving beyond its wartime history in the region? China, Japan and Korea have been linked by trade and culture for centuries, but relations have not always been harmonious between the neighbours. Moments of hostility between Japan and China date back to the 13th century, and Korea has felt the brunt of Japan's military might as far back as the late 1500s. But of course it was Japan's military aggressions in the 20th century which included the invasion and subjugation of Korea and vast areas of China that continue to define relationships between Japan and its closest neighbours. The documented atrocities of Japanese imperial forces in the Chinese city of Nanking, for example, remain etched onto China's national consciousness. Japan's post-war constitution explicitly renounced war as a sovereign right and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. Since its surrender in 1945, Japan has been a responsible pacifist nation, channeling its resources into economic development both at home and in the region. But fast forward to 2018, and a lot has changed in the neighborhood. An increasingly wealthy China is hungry to regain its former glory. South Korea is rich and highly industrialised. And North Korea, under Kim Jong-un, remains belligerent, but with a growing nuclear arsenal. So is the changing region still holding a grudge against Japan? And does Japan deserve to be seen that way? Also, how do countries seek to uphold their reputations or manipulate those of others, for their own ends. To discuss the importance of perception in the politics of Northeast Asia, I'm joined by human migration expert and watcher of both careers, Dr. Jay Sung, and by Japanese language scholar and Japan watcher, Dr. Jun Ohashi. Both Jay and Jun are based at Asia Institute. Welcome to both of you.
2: Thanks for having me. Thank you. Let's
0: start with a brief stock take, if you like, the sort of state of play in these key relationships.
2: Jason, how healthy
0: is the Japan-Korea relationship in 2018?
2: I think we had some bumps in the past, especially the last uh, 2015 agreement between South Korean President Park Geun-hye and Japanese Prime Minister Shinjo Abe about the comfort women issues. And since then, there has been some issues whether the agreement was fair for the victims of uh, human trafficking and sexual slavery during the wartime. And South Korea, there's a new president now. There's been discussions about whether that agreement was fair, it was justified, but then they have to also tackle the diplomatic relation with South Korea's immediate neighbour, Japan. So that has been something between uh, the two countries' relations. Would
0: you characterise the relationship as healthy?
2: I think Korean diplomacy, especially with this new first female foreign minister, Kang Kyung-hwa, has been mature. The diplomacy, especially the relation with Japan, has been very sort of contentious at some points. And, you know, both countries have right-wing nationalists who are only considering their own national interests, representing their own views, and not really listening to the other side of the story. But since the start of this new female foreign minister, Kang Kyung-hwa, who is to be number two of the UN's human rights office and also number one of the humanitarian program, I think she personally probably felt she needed to do something about this past history issue with Japan. She had to talk and promote women's rights issues and representing these uh, comfort women. The average age among the comfort women is 90 years old, and the youngest one is 85. And there are only 37 survivors at the moment. Every year, we are losing um, seven to 10. Kung Fu Women's So time is really pressing and South Korean government had to do something about this issue.
0: And clearly, it's still a really core issue in that relationship. But uh, Dr. Juno Hashi.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I would like to reciprocate to Jay uh, about the comments about the political consensus been reached between um, Japan and Korea. I think the two countries have made a lot of effort. In a way, according to the opinion poll, uh, which is conducted by uh, Genron, involving Japanese and also the Korean research institutions. The opinion poll shows that both Japanese and Koreans see this bilateral relation is very, very important. And more than probably ninety percent of Koreans think that way. And about seventy percent Japanese people believe that these two relations are very, very important. So I think we are in a very healthy situation. But following up your Comfort Women issue, I think This needs to be probably revisited from the point of view of gender equality, not only in the context of coloniser, colonised. So uh, I think the world is ready to look at it from a totally different point of view.
0: It's a completely different paradigm if you paint it in that context. Let's just turn to China for a minute. Yes. That relationship, is it as healthy?
1: I think it's better. I think probably the lowest point of China-Japan relation uh, Is probably 2012 regarding the Senkaku Island, uh, also known as the Aoyu Island, territorial issue. So again, the 2013 Genron opinion poll: 90% of both Chinese and Japanese see the opposite uh, very, very negatively. But interestingly, uh, between 2013 to 2016, we saw a huge jump the Chinese tourist in Japan, probably five times within three-year window. So after that period, we saw very positive Japanese sort of image felt amongst the Chinese people. And there is actually generational difference. Under 20s, probably 65% see Japanese culture Japan positively, but 20s, probably about 40, but uh, 60s and above, 16%. So there is a still the historical, you know, contentious issues.
0: If we look at Korea, is there a disconnect at all between the, the personal, the people to people, and the political, the political imperatives? If I return to that 2015 Comfort Women Agreement, the question of whether that is to be revisited and why, to what extent is that caught up? in the political imperative of having a closer relationship with Japan at a time of an increasingly
2: strong China and an increasingly belligerent North Korea. I agree with uh, Jun's point about the generational differences when it came to the Chinese views of Japan and it's same in Korea. There are generational differences, but also there are gender differences. I think the younger people have a more sort of a close proximity to Japan. I mean, we are culturally similar. And also, we are politically speaking, we are both democracies. I'm talking about South, not the North. South Korea, Japan have shared the political views and ideas and interests, and culturally similar. But there are also gender uh, linkage between the two countries. I and mean, you talked about the sexual harassment, the Me Too movement is also going on in South Korea. And there is a linkage between the progressives in South Korea and Japan. They both are aware of issues in the past. They see f- more from the violence against women uh, issues, domestic violence, sexual harassment, and also the violence during the wartime and the violent masculinity during the World War II period. So there is some alliance among the women's rights movement but what's worrisome from my perspective is among the younger generation, there are also growing nationalism. Uh, young men, college students, they also feed into this sort of very nationalistic ideas about the victimhood and the territorial disputes, for example. It's sort of surrounding violent responses to the neighbouring countries in more of a territorial senses.
0: And is that being, I suppose, identified even potentially used, for want of a better word, by the government?
2: Yeah, you made a point about the government-government relation and the people-to-people relation. I think that definitely there is a diplomatic contention among the three Northeast Asian states, China, both Korea and Japan. But people-to-people relation, we see you know, the variety, the more sort of complex relation when it comes to economic uh, trade, uh, cultural exchanges, and having international students from Japan in Korea and also having Korean students in Japanese prestigious universities And this people-to-people conversation is overcoming the difficulties that we had in the past. And I think it's moving toward more the positive side uh, to improve sort of bottom-up approach, people-to-people relation, having an effect on the bilateral diplomatic relations. I
1: think a good sign is the younger generation. So the K-pop is very popular in Japan and the J-pop. We're talking about military power and so on. But the soft power is probably next generation important factor. I think as early as 2005, they were start talking about soft power. How can Japan capitalise for this Japanese popular culture, manga, anime, and so on? This is the, the Cool drama. Japan. Cool Japan, yes. Yeah. So I think it's been successful. I think Japan is now seen as the third most popular country in the world from the BBC opinion poll. And Japanese cute culture is actually prevailing in Asian countries. And also there are many students from China or Korea learning the language. I think this is a fantastic thing. And the many Japanese people start learning Chinese and Korea. So I really do trust that the younger generation can be taking a major role and also bring a lot of positivity in this discussion.
0: And Jun, the the people-to-people is one aspect of this. But from a government perspective, for both Japan and, I guess, for Korea... Is that political imperative there to ensure that this relationship transcends historical issues, given the current dynamics of the region? It
1: is very, very important because there is a big game going on, China, United States and North Korea. So we are the middle power, have a lot of responsibility, including Australia.
2: Japan is not a middle power. It's bigger than middle. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I, South Korea is a middle well, power. Well, I
1: don't know. Well, just in comparison to the <laughs> other yeah, two. Yeah. So I think we need to be united to contribute to the balancing. I mean, when it comes to the extremist sort of ideology, we should do something about Yeah, I agree about, with you,
2: know. you Jun. I think in terms mm. of the security kind of strategy relation, mm. South Korea, Japan should be the closest allies. And exactly. we're also yes. allies of the United States. Mm. And there is, a, you know, concerns about rising China, whether it's a peaceful rise or more scary, more threatening rise in the region. And from... Koreans, both South and North Koreans, uh, perspective, Japan's territorial disputes with the old neighbours, it's not just with Korea, Tokto Takashima, also Senkaku Diayu, and also uh, Japan has a territorial dispute with Russia as well. So Japan is seen as whether it's going to be a trusted neighbours in the region so that we can rely on Japan when we are facing the threats from North Korea's nuclear tests and the rising China and Russia's sort of ambivalent position in this sort of a power balance in the region. So I think there's a big question about you know whether South Korea and Japan can really trust each other.
1: Exactly.
0: And, yes. and those territorial disputes, are they more of, a, of an issue and in fact a key issue in the Japan-China relationship with the Diaoyu or Senkaku Islands uh, and less of an irritant in the Korean relationship? I mean, if you look at what's happening in the East China Sea, there are regular skirmishes with the Chinese.
1: Well, whenever something happens, all these territorial issues, memory tend to be evoked. So maybe because of the media, I don't know. It may be strategic. But the territorial issue is very, very dangerous because it's explicit. You know, this is mine, this is yours. And then the kind of group identity can be easily evoked, meaning that the group identity is that the in-group member try to amplify the positive attributes of in-group member and try to minimise the positive attribute of the outsider and minimise the negative attribute of insider, amplify the negative attribute of outsider. So all these insider-outsider dynamics can occur so that ignites very, very nationalistic discourse in both sides. So maybe those issues can be strategically used by the media. So this is something we, we need to probably look at from the media literacy point of view.
0: You're listening to Ear to Asia, a podcast from Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Ali Moore. I'm joined by Asia Institute Human Migration Specialist, Dr. Jay Sung, and by Japanese Language Specialist, Dr. Jun Ohashi. We're talking about how Japan is perceived by its immediate neighbours, China, South Korea and North Korea. And we've been talking about the importance of the US to the region, and Jay Sung, for Korea, the U.S. has in some ways proven fraught, hasn't it? If you look at the issues that have
2: uh, constantly surrounding the THAAD missile defence program, for example. That's correct. U.S. has a, a big play in the current nuclear ambition by the North, and. Having the renewed relation between South Korea and the United States, uh, whether to deploy the Tharj, and that really uh, sparked anger by the Chinese nationalists as well. The Chinese government, the authorities, banned Chinese tourists going to South Korea, sort of punishing, not with a military. Uh, Tools, But with the economic power and South Korean businesses, small businesses, especially the tourism uh, industry has huge impact because of uh, the Chinese punishment for South Korea's decision to deploy the Thad's uh, missile defense system. But we haven't really talked about the North Korean view about Japan. South Korea and Japan established diplomatic relation in 1965, but North Korea doesn't have a diplomatic relation with Japan yet. And they're using this sort of nationalistic sentiments and rhetoric about comfort women issues, and uh, Japan uh, vice versa, using the Japanese citizen kidnapped by the North Korean spies. This will be a, a very contentious issue if there is going to be any diplomatic relation established between those two countries. Uh, North Korea is jumping on this career- nationalistic ideas about Japan's uh, past war crimes uh, and their has uh, no equivalent to Nuremberg Trial, for example, after the Second World War in uh, Northeast Asia. And they're using that as a sort of uh, recovering the justice, uh, reparation for the past victims of the crimes against humanity and war crimes. They're probably, you know, looking for a bigger sum of money that would be the outcomes of these uh, diplomatic relations between North Korea and Japan.
0: So what role does North Korea play? in the South Korean-Japanese relationship?
2: That's a very good question. I think that's the only time when North Korea and South Korea have something very much in common when it comes to Korea's relation with Japan. They both share the Japanese colonial period from 1910 to 1945. The 36 years of Japanese colonial period was uh, remembered by Most Koreans, both in the North and the South, it was very cruel, it was very inhumane. The narrative, the personal narrative is very powerful among uh, Korean people's memory of the past. And both North and South Korean government is using that as a way to educate the past history. On the colonial period. It's in the history book. It's also repeated in the national museums, both in South and North Korea, about the atrocities uh, committed by the Japanese soldiers, the Imperial Army. And it's been repeated and repeated. And that's been the blocking factor for uh, Koreans, uh, North and South to overcome that difficulties emotionally. I mean, even me talking to a podcast, just, just remembering those images and just reminding of those uh, personal narratives, uh, it's just um, very emotionally overwhelming and traumatic.
0: And Japan, yes. can they overcome this? I know we talked about generational differences, but even will those generational differences be enough? We have yeah, older well, people. I'd,
1: I'd like to share one of my sort of anecdotes. Um, when I moved to Scotland to do my second degree, uh, I met a Korean scholar doing PhD. And we met at the Preparatory English Language School uh, together. His name as Mr. Lee. We became very, very close and, uh, you know, best friend and we still communicate. But what uh, happened at the very beginning was that he showed very antagonistic sort of attitude, behavior to me once he recognized that I was Japanese. And then I couldn't understand. Um, but it kept going that way about two weeks or so. Um, by chance, we uh, happened to be in university canteen and then we had a chat. And then we sort of came to know that he was angry because of my background, just I'm being Japanese, because of the education uh, he received and also what uh, Imperial Japanese forces did to Korea. And I didn't understand because I was not taught clearly in history class. So I I think, you know, reacting to you, what we need to do, I think in Japanese education system, the history class, we tend to cover probably 3,000 years of timeline in a very short period of time. And uh, probably World War Two and the contentious you know, historical issue probably be touched lightly. Lots of indirect expressions. You know, comfort woman is one of them. So I've been thinking, what would be the best way to teach that? So I think we need to confront students with text from... Textbook used in China or textbook used in Korea and then text used in Japan.
0: This is such an ongoing debate about, yes, about the education exactly. systems. And it's, it raises very interesting questions because we were talking earlier, Jay Song, you were talking about the generational differences, but also the enormous sort of cultural, tourist, business, trade links. And yet, on the other hand, when you have a, a certain version of history being taught, that must hold back future closer relations. Is that a fair point?
1: Yeah, I think we need to educate students student in Japan and Korea and China that there is a different discourses and what you see is a very, very nationalistic idea. I'm talking about media literacy, so we have to be critical about it. You are the person who go out there and collect the more information rather than sort of believing in one aspect. Another danger is that because of the computer algorithm, if you search something, Japanese military atrocity and so on, there are lots of nationalistic discourse, one after another. So it's what we call a filter bubble.
0: Mm, Everyone's reading inside the same bubble and never actually gets a different perspective.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's probably another danger. But I think from the educator's point of view, this is a totally different discourse from different perspectives. So the fact is not only one always been interpreted re-evaluated from a different perspectives and evaluated moment So that's, that's a very
2: good point. I mean, there can't be just only one version of history. I mean, it's obvious that there are many versions of history and people see from their own perspectives. And having access to those different versions of history in all these three countries, China, Japan, and Korea, is important uh, to understand what others will see about us. But I want to just point about Shinjo Abe's popularity in Japan. I think his party and his support rate is very high at the moment. But what's worrying for a Korean, especially is that his denial of the comfort women system as an official Japan policy. He came to uh, the recent Winter Olympic, Pyeongchang Winter Olympic, saying that we can't uh, nullify or we can't reverse the agreement in 2015. And also the denial of the past uh, war crimes still is a very big uh, blocking factor in bilateral relation. There are still some limits in the upper level in government that they should recognize the past crimes. And without that, I don't think there would be any positive bilateral relation between Korea and Japan. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I understand. Uh, the former prime ministers uh, made a lot of apology speeches, and also Shinzo Abe was probably the longest apology in comparison to Murayama and also Koizumi. But Shinzo Abe, in his speech, clearly apologized for the Japanese aggression in wartime. However, the meaning emerges from constant negotiation, uh, the meaning is always subject to constant struggle. So always reinterpreted, uh, revisited, and negotiated. So this is exactly what's been happening. All the inconsistent comments that Shinzo Abe made in the different sort of occasions can cause probably Korean people's going back to the Shinzo Abe's speech. That was actually clear apology and question it. So it is inevitable that we constantly revisit the meaning of the leader's comment and reevaluate it. So that's what's happening now.
0: So against the, the backdrop of the challenges, it would be good if we could finish on a positive note. And indeed, we started our conversation with a positive look at the changing landscape, if you like. Despite these challenges, which will sit within the, the mindsets of people In China, in Japan and in Korea, forever to come, really, are you both optimistic that there is a trajectory here for a closer and better relationship, particularly when you look at
2: a younger generation? I want to stay positive, but we talked about apologies. But it has to be understood and accepted by the victims of the past crimes. And only 37 surviving comfort women in Korea. And these apologies were not felt sincere to them. And there was no reparation. There was no justice done. There was no Japanese soldier or authority or the one who's responsible or prosecuted in the court. So unless that's done, um, the positive side has certain limits, which is quite substantial. But rationally, uh, we need to work with Japan to deal with, you know, other contenders in the region like North Korea, China. So, yeah, I think it's a glass half full and glass half empty, but I want to see the glass half full side.
1: I think our enemy is extreme nationalist idea. I think probably the education would be the key factor. Uh, especially in Japanese education system. And uh, as I said, probably media literacy need to be introduced in Japanese history classrooms. It's a very difficult thing to do, perhaps. There is a textbook screening panel and so on and so forth. And then there is now a very nationalistic system tend to be sort of happening in Japan at the same time. But I think the younger generation will take a very important role from now on. So this is exactly the point that the education need to face. And then we have to educate our young people.
0: Are you optimistic it can be done? I think so. We'll finish it there. <laughs> this is such a, a long conversation uh, and one that uh, you know, goes on because I guess there is no clear answer from any of the countries. Uh, Dr. Jun Ohashi and Dr. Jay Sung, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And it would mean a lot to us if you'd give us a generous rating in iTunes or like us on SoundCloud. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.